Alright, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My name is Ryan Narayan and my guest this week is Kelly Jackson Higgins from Dark Reading. I know a lot of journalists who work very, very hard. I don't think anyone I know works as hard or harder than Kelly. How are you? Good. How are you, Ryan? I'm very good. How is life at Dark Reading? Uh, good. Busy, but good. That's always a good thing. I don't know how you keep up. You and I go way back as competitors competing against each other. I don't know if you know, but I used to hate you. I was chasing the same stories, and you were always faster and had a better angle on the story, which <laughs> used to really upset me. But you were so nice to me when you saw me. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole fake news thing. So how long have you been there? With Dark Reading, let's see, it's been um, 11 plus years. Let's see, we're, we just turned, so it's been 11 years, almost 12 years, and I've been doing security for longer than that. So probably... So that, where were you? So prior to that, I was actually freelancing for a good number of years. So I had my own business. So I was working for multiple publications, network computing, some business magazines, and for Security Enter- Enterprise, which was a magazine that was spun off from uh, from you from the old CMP. I pretty much wrote for every publication in the industry, every IT publication, I think, back then. So I did that for many years. And prior to that, I was with Communications Week, which is long gone, but that was the first big pub I worked for. How did you stumble into security? Was journalism a thing that you wanted to do? You knew you wanted to do right out of college? Absolutely. Um, I was going to be a sports writer. I think um, we all were. I think my yeah, mom also, yeah. myself, I started out <laughs> as a cricket writer. I think Dennis started out as like a, a crime reporter, but he was covering sports as well. I was going to be a one of the first female sports writers for the Washington Post. It didn't quite work out. I'm curious about the, the path into technology and security. Like I kind of fell into it. So out of college, I was still stringing for um, a local newspaper doing sports. And I'd done sports for a campus newspaper in college. And then I saw a job opening for a technology newsletter on IBM. So I applied for the job, got the job, and I was literally an IT tech reporter overnight. <laughs> it was back when uh, uh, PCs were taken off, technology was taking off, and they were looking for reporters to man all these publications that were popping up. And we basically covered IBM ad nauseum, like everything from mainframes to PCs to everything. Um, so I did that. That was my first big technology job and, and then, that was just because you needed a job and you were just looking for exactly a job. exactly and it kind of was a, a good move because from there I kind of tracked my course a bit and ultimately um, I had my own business for a while I always liked the security type stuff better the security writing better in the 90s so when uh, the job came the job opportunity came for dark reading I decided to uh, go back to getting a real job and uh, doing this security stuff full-time T- talk to me about the early days of writing about security and specifically about being a woman because in the 90s, early 90s, it was kind of like, you know, the boys trended towards technology, ladies trended to other things. Was that, what kind of challenge, would, would you say that was a challenge? Was it hard to break in? Was it easy? Uh, were you respected right out the bat with your r- writing chops? I feel like once you know to write, you can write about anything, as long as you put your mind to it and invest the time and the energy to, to learn about it. Can you talk yeah, a little absolutely. bit about, you know, just being a young woman trying to break into this technology space? Sure. So, yeah, I, you know, early on, I, I was a family of two brothers, so I was always the only girl. So I was a little bit of, a, I guess the term was tomboy back in the day. So I was more of an athlete and um, I never really thought about my situation. I was always, almost always the only girl in the room. Like I played sports, all the guys, I was always, always, I had a lot of guy friends. So early on, I was kind of used to that, you know, being the only girl in the room. So I think I sort of knew how to 
my mindset that war, that's right? not a big deal yeah that's not a big deal to me there are times when it was i mean i definitely had some challenges but um i think you know at the beginning of this era of this of the industry a lot there were a lot of female reporters you know so that, that wasn't where i was outnumbered it was more with the tech the technical people that you talk to or the people you interview your sources are mostly men um and that's still obviously the case it's getting better but um, so that that was always a little bit of um, of a obstacle, but I think I, I, I so my whole mindset was just don't think that way that you're the only one in the room. That's that's not if you look at it that way you're gonna it may make you feel intimidated when it shouldn't, but it might. So I think I sort of just looked past that and tried to just you know do my thing basically. But our our world kind of trends to this being intimidated thing. I mean, I, I'm a guy. I've been around it for a long time. And even now, when you're talking to someone about their research, and a, a lot of it might still be over my head, there is the tendency to be to be nervous, to be intimidated a little bit. Uh, and, and I'd imagine it's probably harder for women. It's young, yeah, let's talk about young uh, female journalists coming into the industry now, or young journalists on the whole. But specifically for women, when when you have, you know, sources and subjects and people doing research that might not be, sometimes you run into guys who, you know, are not as patient or not as quote-unquote nice, sometimes can be a little hard on on people who, you know, their view is not as technical or not understanding as much. Do you still, one, do you still run into that? And how how do you navigate that kind of struggling to get, get respected enough that they they're patient enough to to understand these very technical, complex problems so that you can simplify it for your readers. Yeah, I think, you know, I really, interestingly, I haven't experienced that as much in security as I did in the IT world um, when I was younger, maybe because I was younger. (laughs) Um, I had some rough experiences in my 20s on business trips, but um, I think over the past 12 to 15 years in the industry, I mean, I've had definitely, I've I've got that feeling of someone sort of talking down to you a little bit but for the most part i think when you know your stuff or you are comfortable and confident enough to ask the questions and not feel like you're not capable of learning this thing that you're trying to learn i think people do respect that even if you aren't by nature a technical person i mean i was an english major so you know i came from a computer science background i did take a fortran class in college that almost killed me (laughs) i didn't have you know my technology chops come from reporting on it all these years so you know i learned it and i tried to understand it to be able to give it to our readers and i'm I'm a curious person by nature so i wanted to learn how things work so and i was always like the super user on things you know i would want to be the first person to try new technology so i had that perspective so i i think when you when you come into a story and and you really are interested in it i think people kind of that whole i think the sexism thing tends to go away a little bit at least that's been my experience over the past few years i think that's, there's still situations definitely where you, you feel that you get that feeling, you get those vibes. But I think overall it's, it's gotten better in security. I think security, you know, there have been some experiences that have been not great, but I think overall the times are much better now than they were maybe 20 years ago. I agree. I think our industry has gotten nicer, um, especially on the research side, guys sharing their work. And a lot of, you know, with, the, with the, the evolution of social media and the ability to respond to things almost immediately and let the whole world see. <laughs> yep. it, is, it has kind of helped in those cases where someone may claim that you misquoted them or got something wrong. But, there, you know, there are still times today when I'm reading about something super complex, crypto, for instance, like... I'll, I'll I'll never be that mathematician level to fully grasp everything from it, but I find that m- most of the time people are willing to help you understand it in simpler terms, so that you can explain it in simpler terms. Because our job is to 
take all these very complex technical things and, and help the average reader understand it. In, in our world, we're writing for B2B audience, so it's not necessarily the average mom and pop, but at some level, you still have to dumb it down, so to speak, to get it out there. And I find that it, our industry has gotten nicer where people are more willing to yeah. explain I, I think there's a lot of really, one thing I like about security versus my, my experience with pure IT was there's so many personalities in security. I think because there's so much creativity associated with the work. One of the coolest things we did, it was Tim Wilson's idea, our, our co-founder and editor-in-chief's idea. When we first started, he said, Kelly, why don't you go interview some of these researchers, like do kind of like in-depth personality kind of profiles on them, find out how they got into this stuff and, you know, just drill down and get to know them. And it was the coolest way to, first of all, really dig into the industry. And second of all, to get to know people beyond their work. Um, and they all had really interesting paths to their jobs, to their field, to the field. And um, I think that to me was eye-opening on, well, this is a whole different realm than other technical sectors, I think. Um, I think I know, you know what you're talking to... about. You're talking about the, the, the Q&A things that, you know, talked about what people had on their iPods and just, just more... Yeah, we... It was actually, that's like a little sidebar. We do this kind of fun stuff. We also did, I've, I've done a, a pretty much almost every industry pioneer I've interviewed over the past 12 to 15 years, or it's been 12 years, I guess. And it, the most fun part is I always find some nugget about somebody that I had no idea that would shocked me, that was hilarious, or that was really interesting and enlightening about them. And I think people really do like to open up about who they are, not just their work. Um, they're proud of their work you know, in this industry, obviously, and that's an important piece, but they also want to, they're, they're interested in telling you a little bit about how they got there. And that's, that, to me, that was a really good um, strategic move. Yeah, I for dark it. reading. I think I told you, I think I told you privately, yeah, that was one of my favorite things, yeah. Yeah, we've done them a lot lately because we've been busy with other stuff, but we're trying to pick them up again. And I just did one on, on Michelle Kwan recently, that was a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, I saw So it's just, really, yeah, it's really neat to be able to, I think that was a big a big moment for me to realize how different this industry is and how much there's a lot of interesting, you know, character and the people and, and the things that they do. And they're all, not everybody's a computer scientist. Everyone's coming from different walks to what they do. So that was, I thought that was kind of a, a neat way to get to know people. And I think that helps too when you, then you have them as they know that you know about them, not just their work. So when you interview them again, you, you know each other better, right? It's a, right. you have like a basis for a relationship. So that, that really helps too, I think. And I think in fairness to them, and, and interestingly as well, a lot of those guys are also nervous talking to the media. They haven't been properly, <laughs> you know, haven't been media trained, don't quite grasp it, get nervous about being quoted. And, you know, I, I remember Dennis Fisher doing a talk about hacking the media and just how understand, understand, you know, the role of the media and understand, you know, how you help each other uh, and progress in the industry. And, and that has been a learning curve for a lot of uh, researchers. I think over the years it's gotten better. I mean, there's there's some guys who set the template for how it's done, Charlie Miller and, and some of those guys kind of know how to play the game uh, very, very well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But more and more it's gotten better, I think. I think that's true. And I, I think, I mean, I, I think I have a better uh, appreciation for doing things like this, like <laughs> people asking me questions about me, which I'm not used to being in that situation. I've, I've always kind of balked at doing any conversations like that just because I think I'm the reporter. I'm not supposed to be part of the story. And, and you know, my traditional journalism brain is like, don't do that. But so I think it's good when I've done these conversations like this with you on other podcasts that it makes me think about, wow, what it's like to be on the other end of when I do my job. So I think it gives me a new appreciation too of, you know, what it's like to be on both sides of it. 
Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's a fun world. I stumbled into security by accident. I was the youngest reporter at uh, Internet News at the, at the time, and the guy who was writing about security at the time left, and they looked to the, the rookie and said, okay, guy, you got security. No one wanted it. It was just writing about <coughs> random Microsoft patches and, you know, random vulnerability issues. And I stumbled into it and just fell in love with it, and it's the, the you know, best thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, when I speak to some of my peers and some of uh, the guys in the industry, a, a lot of us kind of just stumbled into security, decided to specialize and, you know, made a name for yourself. And it's, yeah, it's, and that's what's interesting about all these re researchers is some of them, it was the same thing, right? They were just playing around with something or trying to figure out how something worked or how to take it apart or how to fix it or how to break it, whatever. And then they ended up in this industry. That's kind of because, I mean, the industry was kind of a grassroots thing anyway, right? So I think it's interesting that we all kind of came in that way, a lot of us in the early days anyway. Um, so to me, that makes it even more fun because everyone has different, you know, different insights and, and uh, perspectives on it. How has social media and all these new platforms, new, new ways to expose your work and communicate and share changed your approach to news gathering, you know, just gathering information and writing information? Because I, I, I was thinking about this the other night, you know, it started back in the day where you were, you had to go scour the internet for anything that's uh, remotely interesting. And then the RSS came along and we all had our RSS readers and then everything was kind of fed to you. You would subscribe to these blogs, you would subscribe to RSS came along and RSS died and we've got all these new platforms. Twitter has kind of replaced everything for, you know, just information gathering and scouring. How has like news gathering and writing and just, you know, staying on top of things changed over the years for you? Oh, dramatically. I mean, think about when you used to just make cold calls to people, right? And sometimes just email people later. But it was, you know, to me, Twitter, you know, is a curse and a blessing all at the same time. You know, it, it helps me in my job a lot, but also can make me crazy because <laughs> you can't keep up with all, all of that, right? Impossible. Um, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to have a scoop because people will just like say something on Twitter like, oh, I was working on that story. <laughs> so <laughs> that's hard. But it also is so useful because you can see the conversation. Like I, I try to tell um, other people, you know, literally I have Twitter up all day long. It's not like I'm reading every single tweet, but I'm monitoring stuff all day. You know, what's happening, the conversations happening in the industry, um, anything that's going on in the world. All I see everything first on Twitter, literally every breaking news story I've ever seen in, in the world in my past, you know, every years I've been on Twitter, eight years or it's been, has been on Twitter. I've seen it first before I, you know, heard it on TV or read it anywhere else. Yeah. So I think, I think it's really useful. I think the, the one thing I always, I didn't like about it early on was people would just like, snark at each other on there and not have a conversation you know i mean they wouldn't they wouldn't like have a personal conversation they would just call somebody out but i i also see now that people are getting better about how they use that platform um you still see some you know trolling but i think people yeah people in our our industry have gotten better about how they use that now though i think so I, i love it it's it's like my favorite platform and it doesn't you know dictate what i write about like i'm that i'm making it twitter friendly or anything like that but it definitely i have at my fingertips, like conversations in the industry all day long. So I, I know what's happening, you know, minute by minute, which I really appreciate about it. I want to talk quickly about some trends you're noticing, writing about, or just mulling in your head as you look uh, at the industry as a whole. One, one thing that jumps out at me is operating systems have gotten a lot more robust security-wise. Uh, all these anti-exploit mechanisms built into Windows 10, Mac OS, iPhone, it, just in a general sense, uh, all platforms have been hardened uh, and the, the industry as a whole has gotten better. However, there isn't a day there isn't a new breach. There isn't a day there isn't a new APT 
the advanced threat actor compromising something. How, how, how do we balance that in our heads that email is more secure, the web is more secure, browsers are more secure, operating systems are more secure, but compromises and breaches are just a everyday occurrence to the point now where you're kind of numb to it. it you know, I, I'd always come back to the same bottom line answer to why these breaches happen. It's usually basic security stuff that wasn't done properly or basic security hygiene, basically, right? That that seems like that's always the common theme in most of the breaches. You know, maybe not some of the really, you know, in, uh, complicated AT type breaches, but the stuff we're seeing, you know, in the big news stuff is like somebody left... The, the that cloud server sitting open, or uh, so, you know somebody got fished. It's all the same kind of themes of why it happened. So I, I totally know what you're saying. That's my frustration. I've watched the industry evolve so much from like you know firewalls were the going to save the world you know 15 yeah. years ago, and then you know antivirus is going to save the world you know 10 years ago, um, and now we're at a point where things like you said that we have the, these nice built-in anti-exploitation tools and Windows, and you know you have biometrics on your phone, you know stuff you didn't think you'd have anytime soon. Um, but there's still that basic, I think, you know, companies and individuals still have basic security mistakes they make. Um, yeah. it's, it's, and, it's, for, yeah. it's for most basic simple things. It's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. phishing, uh, uh, spare phishing, which is uh, ridiculously successful or uh, effective. Poor password policies. Poor password policies. It's some sort of configuration error somewhere. Uh, and I think I think the majority of breach cases you can tie to those three or four things. Oh, poor patch management! If you're you're, you're sitting on a patch for too long, for which an exploit is available. So it seems like there's four basic hygiene things that that could potentially stop it, but no one can get it right. Why is that? Is it just okay. because of a people problem, a resource problem, or? Patching is never easy. Um, no, I think all those things, I think it's kind of all those things, right? You have more people bringing devices in, right? In your homes, in your office, um, on campuses. I mean, I, I feel for these, you know, security managers have to manage this network of stuff coming and going, right? And then you've got people that are easily duped. People want to be, they trust. By nature, people are trusting. They want to be helpful, right? It's easy to fall for something. I think that's, you know, the, the human nature issue. You've got the, 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 the fact that everything's just exploding technology-wise. We just bought a new refrigerator, and I was joking, I'm not buying a smart refrigerator. It turns out it has a Wi-Fi <laughs> feature, and I'm like, I am not turning that on. <laughs> for what? So, you no, know, what's it for? I still don't understand. I was purposely thought I was not buying a smart refrigerator, but apparently it does have built-in Wi-Fi. I'm like, no way. I'm not activating that. So, I mean... That kind of thing. People don't even know they're bringing in stuff sometimes, right, in their homes. Here I am, like, I'm not going to buy a smart fridge, and we accidentally did. So, <laughs> Right, but I think, I think I, I, yeah, yeah, I think we're, we're one or two years away from not being able to avoid smart things. Everything will come yeah. uh, with some sort of connectivity built in for some reason, whether you use it or not. I don't think you'll be able to buy a TV anymore that doesn't have smart capabilities. Or you, I, I just think we're heading there and... and since we're there, what do you make of what do you make of this? Just your your, your research and your work into the whole IoT space, uh, not counting the industrial IoT space, because a lot of companies now are building building platforms and products that allow you to avoid the air gap or bridge the air gap. Um, wh- where are we heading with this stuff? Are you talking about the consumer side of it specifically, or uh, both? Both. Both. Yeah, I think. Well, you know. The problem is we're talking consumer products in all these cases, and the people that are building them are not security people, right? They're not supposed to be. And so, you know, we've seen this cottage industry in the past year pop up of IoT security vendors. I'm Correct. not sure how that's going to work yet, how effective that's going to be. But, 
yeah, I, I, I've been trying to wrap my head around that. You know, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, having sort of a United Laboratory certification for cybersecurity for these things. You know, we've got the, the UL is actually doing some work and some other groups that are, um, but none of that stuff's mainstream yet, right? So it's it's hard to know when you're buying these devices. And if you're a consumer, you're not going to know anyway. You know, you're not going to understand that you're, I mean, I'm embarrassed I didn't know my refrigerator didn't have a Wi-Fi connection. I didn't see them this the feature right. list. So yeah. people who are buying stuff don't know when they bring it home. So I, I feel like there's got to be, I don't think you're ever going to get the consumer product manufacturers to be able to build in security to their products. I think it's going to be adding layers to your home Wi-Fi network or, you know, like kind of like people we're seeing now, right? We're seeing those devices pop up um, on the home side. Um, the ICS SCADA side is another another ball wax because, you know, actually some of the big, I've been writing about this the last few months because I've seen the slow sort of movement of the big the big names like Siemens and those guys starting to really take security seriously. And they're actually even providing like, Manage security services for their their um, for their customers as well. Besides building in more security in their newer products, now of course their older generation stuff, the the um, legacy stuff is probably not going to be fixed ever, right? Um, so that's going to sit out there, which is kind of frightening. But they are looking at and providing more of a service, you know, SOC as a service type thing for those environments that are obviously pretty critical and and very vulnerable. There's an ICS cybersecurity bill uh, that was introduced. Uh what, four months ago, three, four months ago, that will mandate no hard-coded passwords, the ability to patch itself, uh, and some other uh, minimal things. I think it's kind of falls short, but do you think there's a, there, we're heading towards regulation? I, I just think that we can't get a, if we can get a national breach bill, you know, I wonder if we can get that done, right, the, the IoT stuff. I mean, I think in some ways the IoT stuff is, people are kind of seeing that more firsthand, understand it, because I think with breaches, people get kind of numb to it, like we said, or like you said earlier, and, you know, most people, you lose your credit card or your credentials, oh, you just get new ones. But if, you know, something happens to your home network, you, you might notice it more more uh, easily. But I, I don't know it with Congress if that's going to make it. I think it's still too early for that. I, I like the idea of no hard code passwords and auto updates being mandatory, but I don't know how you would enforce that with some of these companies because pretty much every company that's building, you know, consumer stuff, even toys, you know, have these features now. How do you ensure that they're doing that and then doing it right? You know, I, I, that's to me, that's that's still a pretty big hurdle. Yeah, to, I don't know how, how it can be enforced. Yeah, uh, that's the other thing. How do you enforce all that? There's a ton of stuff out there. How do you how do you enforce that? So I, I don't know. I mean, that would I think that would be a nice concept. I just don't know if it's if it's something that could happen anytime soon or realistically anytime soon. Yeah, but when it comes to self-driving cars and connected cars and and some of the, the utilities that put real lives at risk, we're 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 going to have to get to that point. And I know you. I think I saw you did a piece on was it a police department in Virginia or some some law yeah. enforcement agency in Virginia were messing around with connected cars and they were in your piece they were talking about this like yeah it was interesting it was a Virginia state trooper uh, troopers decided to do sort of allow a sort of a hacking experiment of their vehicles right and what's interesting is those vehicles weren't super high tech by any means they were pretty basic but they still had some connectivity they had a few security folks come in and such as MITRE and other uh, smaller companies was coming it, in. Wasn't Billy Reyes involved with that project? Not that one. Not that one specifically. Okay. Um, but both, both the, the car the car um, manufacturers got involved. Ford was one of them, and I'm blanking on the other one right now because I wrote it like two or three years ago. I'm going right. to GM. Um, and they did actually respond in some way to that event ultimately. But it was kind of eye-opening because they had what we thought were kind of low-tech cars, but they were still able to do things like take over the steering or lock the car where you had 
where you couldn't start it or, you know, things that a, a state trooper would definitely <laughs> would definitely notice. So it was I thought that was really kind of leading edge for a state to be looking at. It was a project that they did uh, yeah. partially through the University of Virginia. I was looking around recently. All the major car manufacturers have like a really, really mature security teams in place now. Yes. Uh, I, I just moved to Phoenix. We have uh, Waymo and Uber uh, testing their self-driving cars here. I see them on the road all the time. You know, when you look at the security departments of these companies, they're, they're, they're pretty much very, you know, solidly invested in the security side of things. I think Charlie and Chris and their work on the GPAC really raised oh, yeah. the profile and the importance of doing Absolutely. this. Yeah, I think uh, that was a turning point, really, for the visibility of the problem. That they, they really, because sh- the visuals of what they did, I think, really was an eye-opener for people. Um, yeah, it's not like I that. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of stunt hacking, but I think there's some case, some places where yeah. it's relevant. And, and this was one case where I, they, they were criticized a little bit for stunt hacking, putting Andy on the road with the car. But I think it, it moved the needle. And right around that time was when we saw, I remember writing a piece on this, I think it was a black hat. Um, right around that time, we saw some of the major manufacturers, even like medical device manufacturers, start hiring security people from that we knew in the industry, like some researcher type people, like bringing them on to help them because they this was a whole new thing they hadn't really thought through or had the resources to do. So I think that around that time, we really did see sort of a shift of concern about physical safety, you know, your, your family, your, you know, your, yourself at the, at your, in the hospital. So they think that that was probably when I started noticing more, uh, a lot of these physical <laughs> potential right. uh, devices bringing on like actual security staff. So I agree with you. I think the car manufacturer will come a really long way pretty quickly. I think they still have a lot to do, obviously, but it's pretty impressive that they've, they've actually finally, after they kind of poo-pooed Charlie and Chris's initial first year of the work they did, the one they did at Charlie's house, I think it was in the garage, right. they kind of poo-pooed that and dismissed everything they did. And then what, a year later, you had, you had to prove the <laughs> yeah. remote thing. Yeah. So you know, it is a bit of a bummer that the medical device world has not quite matured to the point that the car guys are at, and the car guys came to it much later. I remember Barnaby doing this pacemaker thing or the insulin yep. pump thing years ago, years right. ago. So we knew we knew the capabilities of some of these hacks to cause real damage. And, you know, even today you have medical device manufacturers shipping stuff that is just woefully inadequate on the security side. That, that That's a bit of a bummer. I want to ask you about, like, your, your favorite stories to write over the years. Do you have, like, a like a top five, not necessarily traffic-wise, or but just, uh, you know, top five hacks or research or, or things that you broke that you, you know, you always, always comes to mind, like, when am I going to get another one of those stories to write? <laughs> Yeah. Oh gosh. There's now I'm going back in time here. Um, I guess some of the favorite, my favorite things I wrote about, and I didn't break the story, but I remember doing a lot of cool reporting on Stuxnet. I really enjoyed covering that a lot because um, that was such a groundbreak, game-changing, groundbreaking thing we finally saw that we sort of expected was going to happen at some point. Oh, so that was real cool. cyber weapon. Yeah, exactly. That was a lot of fun to cover. I, I think I wrote a series. This wasn't like a. a I, I would call it more of a, a, a trend I saw happening. I wrote a series of pieces on it. This was like probably four or five years ago at RSA. This is before, okay, you know the term, everyone's hacked, they just don't know it yet. Okay, so five years ago, nobody was saying that four or five years ago. And I was at RSA and I was walking around the show floor and I was noticing there were these products and small startups had products that were like talking about when the bad guys are in, what to do. And I was like, what? Because the vendors before that were saying, we're stopping up at the door, we're defending you know, everything was defense, defense, stop, you know, detect, you know, keep them out. They're not getting in. Well, then it sort of became this 
accepted um, worst the worst kept secret became real that yeah they're already in so what do you do so I wrote a piece just talking about security's new reality and I made a series out of it because I, I talked to so many people about how the mindset was changing to mitigation or preventing lateral movement and that was a, a game changer in my mind because I was watching and like I said now this is like old hat now 45 right. years later but to me that was the most interesting interesting research I did because I just I just saw it, you know, looking at some of the stuff that was popping up and some of the conversations I was having with security people. I mean, people were getting frustrated with that oh, we can't stop this stuff, you know, what do we do? And nobody would admit they were getting, you know, owned. And and so to me, that was kind of like a, a that was for me as a, as a journalist in this industry. I learned so much from that, you know, and I got a, a whole other perspective on it. And I loved writing the series because that was, gave me a lot of latitude to write some long form pieces. That was a lot of fun to write about. And and of course, now that's an old hat story. Like that seems like that's been around for 20 years, but it was yeah. only like four years ago. <laughs> yeah, I remember a couple of years, Steve at Egby take him to SAS and uh, t- did a talk. I think he was a day trade at the time on this kill chain, like let them in, watch mm-hmm. them and yep. try to figure out because you're never going to get to the point where they're not going to get in. You have to assume that you you will be owned how yeah. do you, you function after that. Yeah, and that was, like I said, people weren't admitting that for so long, and mostly because the vendors were not allowing that conversation to happen, and it just started kind of happening because some of these former DoD vendors were coming into the commercial space, bringing their tools that the DoD were using and the defense contractor world was using, and then it just was kind of like eye-opening, like, oh, whoops, (laughs) they are getting in. (laughs) Do you sometimes feel resigned uh, as a human being that we are never going to get to the point where we conquer cybersecurity or internet security or computer security, but at the same time, it's job security for all of us, I guess. But again, you, you, I go through these, I go through these waves of being, you know, optimistic that all these, like we, we talked about earlier, anti-exploit mitigations and all the hardening of the operating systems and the browsers and Project Zero has arguably the best security team out there keeping Chrome as strong as it can be. But at the same time, it's just... We're so numb to these breaches every day. I just, have I been pawned? Has my uh, email address in there from the Home Depot hack? It's just frustrating and, and depressing. Do you do you feel that? Sometimes I do. You know, we get like a whirlwind of bad news. You start thinking, oh man, are we ever going to get on top of this? But then I think about how far we've come, right? For a while there was this whole thing, okay, we're showing how you can break everything, but how are we supposed to fix this thing? So now we're seeing some, you know, newer technologies for, you know, like mitigation, defense, and and, uh, you know, the bad guys in a lot of cases are having to go over a few more hurdles now, which is a good sign. But I think I don't think we're ever going to fix it completely, just like you can't fix crime in general. I think you can make it harder, which is what everyone's trying to do. Right. But I think it has to be more of a community effort in terms of like the user community, too. And and companies like really, I think, sort of indoctrinating their their comp- their employees about your part of the solution of the of keeping our, you know, our company safe. And here's why this, everyone has a responsibility to to you know, be safe and to be, you know, use good practices and be aware. And if you see something, say something, right? Just kind of like what we do with, you know, our anti-terrorism right. um, strategy. I, I don't think, like I said, you just can't stop it. But I think, you know, I think we've made some progress. I think sometimes we've been, we get stuck in place sometimes a little bit when I think when some vendors get comfortable with what they're doing and then they don't sort of push it along. But I think there's so many startups now that are pushing the envelope. I think that helps. And if people are getting more aware, I mean, you can actually talk about, what you do now with family members and they understand what you do. <laughs> you know, like six years ago, I, you do what? Yeah, exactly. like, oh, so security, people actually understand it so you can have conversations. So I think it is, it's sort of like, a, I don't think we'll ever fix it now. I think, I think we have job security, sadly, in that way. 
When, but when, I don't think that it's going to, you know, I don't think it's not like we can't fix some things. I think we can improve things. When you guys are planning your coverage on a daily basis, weekly basis, how do you balance the need to write about defense when it's boring and unsexy versus chasing the new hack or the new uh, bit of uh, security research from the offensive side? Because I feel like the media in general, for good reason, you know, are not covering defense and, and companies investing in, in, in blocking things and fixing things as excitedly as they cover the offensive side of things. And, I, and I, I, don't, I don't know if this is true either, but I find like some of the smartest brains in our industry are focused on offense and not defense. Maybe it's maybe it's product of uh, the media not writing about defense as much. Maybe I'm wrong. I think that's changing a little bit because even at some of the shows where the where the you know the hacks the, the badass hacks where the you know the, the the big the big draw they're still we're starting to see some more of the here's some cool ways to to you know defend or here's some here's what we, we did this but here's how you can stop this I think because I think now it's everyone's problem right I think early on there was a lot of lack of awareness that it was happening to you but now there's the awareness that yeah you're getting owned too so what are you going to do about it so I think the pressure is on for for um, the security industry to provide defensive strategies as well and, and I mean in terms of our writing you know we've grown a lot this year we just added a couple new people on staff so we're growing by leaps and bounds around so we I'm managing it's a lot of about moving. time <laughs> I'm managing a lot of moving parts I will say that we, we do try to balance that. One of the things that we've tried to do at Dark Reading is not just write about breaking news all the time. Like there is a lot of it more now than there was when we first started, obviously. But one of the things we always try to do is bring perspective of, okay, this is happening, but what does this mean? Or, or look at a second day look at something. You know, what's the relevance of this of this uh, trend or this news event to really drill down? And that's kind of what we've tried to specialize in over the years. And it's hard when there's more breaking news happening because you need to cover that as well. But we always try to take the time and carve out, you know, room for a person to write about something that's more in-depth and more, you know, kind of take it to the next level. That's kind of what we try to do. And, and I think to me, that's the more fun stuff. I mean, breaking news is fun to write, but I prefer when I can take, you know, an idea I have from a story and like take it to a different, take a different direction or a different level that nobody else is doing or drill down into it and look at it from a different, from a different perspective or maybe a way someone else hadn't looked at it yet that sort of opens up some more information or more insight. So that that's kind of what we try to do. It is hard. I think now it's harder because there's so much more news than there was. I was so just going to ask, do you do, yeah. do you find that sometimes you're just saying like we're we're not going to get to that? It's just too fast paced. There's too much too much breaking news on Twitter that we'll never get to focus on the deep dive connecting the micro to the macro stories that you want to do. That sometimes, you're just you're just yeah. like we're not going to get to that one. Sometimes you have to you know, have to make those those decisions. What we've also done is sometimes with breaking news, if it's not something that we think is necessarily earth shattering, and sometimes we'll do we have a, a thing we call quick hits where we just do like a, a four or five paragraph boom, read more here, then we can deal with it later if, when we don't think we can do a great you know anything more than the news item has already had on it. So that gives us some room to breathe and do something else with it later or cover other news that's happening. Because literally you could be writing everything that happens, that's all you would do, and you still wouldn't write all, <laughs> well, <laughs> even with the bigger stuff. <laughs> absolutely. Well, first of all, yeah. it's about time Dark Reading added some more resources to you guys. <laughs> I watch your schedule at Black Hat and RSA and the TV and the running around and 8 o'clock at night hosting a dinner and hosting this panel. I don't know how on earth you guys did it. So major props. Like I, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say you're the hardest working uh, journalist in our space. It's it's not even a question. What, what are some of these, just to wrap up quickly, what are some of these connecting the micro to the macro type stories that you're, you're keen on pursuing? I don't want you to give it away to your com- competition because I know you're also very competitive, but 
you know, what are, what are some what are some underreported things that you know you wish you would get time to get to, or you're you know you're planning to focus on? I started doing some more research, and I, I've been. Um, yeah, so we've, we've ramped up our stuff recently, so I haven't been writing as much the last few months as I usually do, but I have a lot of stories I've been starting to, to do some work on. One area I think that's that really we scratched the surface of is sort of how companies and organizations are dealing with incident response from the security operations center perspective or a service that they're using. Kind of, I feel like there's so much there that I should be writing about. I've started a little bit uh, of that coverage, but every time I start to dig into it, there's more. I think that area is evolving really quickly You're because about threat of, intel and the whole notion of using just, threat well, kind of threat intel being a piece of that but i'm talking about just how an organization responds to an incident your your sock your um you know the services you use there's a lot of options out there now you, know, you can you can farm out some of it you can have some people in-house there's a lot of startups now doing sock as a service a managed services but then also you know your own people in-house what are their jobs how are they evolving in the, in the incident side of things and it, are, is your incident response team working with your security team in terms of the strategy for your securing the, the whole company? And sometimes they're not. So I think there's a lot of stuff there that's like really applicable to most companies and organizations now that, that we're just sort of scratching the surface of in the industry in terms of talking about it. I just did a piece on the tier one SOC analyst, how that job's evolving. And I learned a lot from that, not just on that one job, but the, every other layer above the, and that whole, the whole stream there, what, what's happening with their jobs. And it's happening so quickly because there's so much stuff coming in, right, with all the tools and the, like you said, the threat intel on the back end, you've got all these things coming in. And, and it's, a, it's a moving, it's a constant moving target. So how do you, how do you set up your team to handle incidents that you can catch stuff early that it doesn't, or that you don't get caught up in, you don't get some rabbit hole with some false positive. So I think that area is something that really interests me. And I'm trying to do more in that space. I've done some, I did, like I said, one story, but I've got several more on my back pocket I'm trying to get to. Yeah. Just along the same lines, we talked about it earlier, there are four basic hygiene, common security mistakes that lead to breaches. We know it's these four basic things. Like It's fascinating to me how companies are addressing just that, not chasing after blocking every sophisticated threat actor, but just getting the basics right and how how security departments at, at, at enterprises and businesses are maturing to the point where they, they either do that themselves and how much of that they're farming out to get a third-party security vendor to really test their infrastructure to make sure their AWS is properly configured or Azure or whatever they're using or making sure they they're have two-factor authentication properly uh, configured to deal with poor password policies, making sure they're patching properly. These four things, it's really interesting to me to see how companies are addressing that, whether internally or externally as well. And this is pre-breach, pre-breach. Uh, right. You're talking about post-breach. Well, kind of both. I'm talking about when you see an event, right? And you right. don't know, is this, is this a real thing? Do I escalate this? Or, you know, everyone, you know, we pick on Target as the poster child for when not to ignore. <laughs> right. But you think about all the events, all the incidents you get that get thrown at you on a daily basis, you know, that there is some mistake is going to happen. You know, how do you mitigate that, I guess, is the thing. And I think that's something we're still figuring out as an industry. And I think companies are really struggling to, to get on top of that and how to set up their their whole defense on that respect. So I think that area is really interesting to me just to sort of see what they're, I just see how much it's changed in five years. You know, don't read these kind of stories five years ago. Not everybody had even a really a setup SOC plan, right? Or instant response plan. That's really, that's come of age more in the last five years, unless you're a big, big organization. Yeah. And making sure your, your SOC isn't too noisy or whatever alert is coming. What, what is an actionable alert versus just 
something you need to ignore. And building that and getting that robust and, and mature has got to be a, an ongoing challenge. Yeah, and I think that's probably part of this whole key of um, you know, this idea, yeah, we're all we're all owned, but okay, what are you going to do about when you see something happening? How do you stop it from, you know, moving around and getting to your, to your uh, crown jewels or your sensitive or information or spreading to a, you know, beyond one machine to another machine, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's, that's really, it sounds so, yeah, we talk this all the time, but that really is kind of the, the, the bottom line of how do you get on top of that? And I think that's still really a, a, a challenge for a lot of companies. Thank you very much, Kelly. You're very Appreciate welcome. Appreciate the time. <laughs>